This is episode 51 of the March of History. I am your host, Trevor Furness. To recap our last episode, episode 50, Caesar had inflicted defeats on the Britons and had therefore imposed tribute upon them. After that, he sailed away from the island of Britannia and returned to Gaul. And I left our last episode saying that when Caesar arrived in Gaul, he received some rather distressing news of a personal nature. So that is where we pick up with episode 51 today. Upon arriving in Gaul, Caesar received some letters from some of his friends living in Rome. These letters contained devastating news. Julia, Caesar's much-beloved daughter, is dead. Julia had died in childbirth, giving birth actually to Pompey Magnus's child, Caesar's political ally in the triumvirate. And the grandchild now of Caesar and the child of Pompey dies shortly after Julia. Some of our sources say it was a boy, some say it was a girl, so we're not sure which. But either way, Julia, Caesar's daughter, dies, and shortly afterwards, her child, Caesar's grandchild, dies as well. Now, this happens in 54 BCE. That's the same year, 54 BCE, that would see the death of Caesar's mother, Aurelia. Both of these deaths, the death of his daughter, Julia, and the death of his mother, Aurelia, are crushing blows to Caesar. These are the two members of Caesar's family that were closest to him. After all, Caesar's daughter, Julia, took after him. She was charismatic, she was well-loved by the people of Rome, and she was well-loved by Caesar. And Aurelia, Caesar's mother, for her part, was a rock in Caesar's life. She had a huge influence on him. She was a stern disciplinarian on him when he was in his youth, and she was a formidable woman in her own right, and she had a lot to do with Caesar's success. Aurelia was the one, after all, who, when Caesar was leaving his house on election day for Pontifex Maximus, Caesar said to Aurelia that he would return home Pontifex Maximus, or he would not return home at all. Aurelia had a massive impact on Caesar's life. She was the main parent that had raised him because Caesar's father had died when he was young or relatively young and had been away for much of his life before then. And after her death, Aurelia, along with two other women, a woman named Cornelia, the mother of the Gracchi, and Attia, the mother of Augustus, would be remembered by the Romans as the three paragons of maternal values in Rome. But both of these women, Aurelia and Julia, important people in Caesar's life, both of them die in the exact same year. And by this point, Caesar has been in Gaul for four years, waging almost constant warfare. And there is no evidence that during those four years, he saw Julia or Aurelia once. This is a stark lesson about the price of ambition, especially ambitions as high as Caesar's. Had Caesar not been so obsessed with proving himself as the greatest, the most capable of the Romans to ever exist, he could have spent at least part of those four years with his mother and with his daughter before they died. But Caesar had ambitions larger than simply spending time with loved ones. 
He wanted a five-year command, then extended it to ten. So it must have been a bitter pill for Caesar to swallow, knowing that his ambition had cost him those final years with Julia and with Aurelia. But like we said, Caesar is a man of immense ambition. And even if given the choice to go back in time and to choose again how he would spend his time, would he change anything? Or would he make all the same decisions again? This is a little bit of playing armchair psychologist on somebody we've never actually met in person. It's impossible to know. But the fact that it's hard for us to tell which decision Caesar would make just serves to illustrate how hard-headed he was in achieving his ambitions. Now, these deaths of Caesar's mother and of his daughter, Aurelia and Julia, are terrible, personal tragedies in Caesar's life. But there is nothing personal in the life of a Roman aristocrat that isn't also political. Even while Caesar is grieving his daughter's death, he is also thinking about how her death affects his political position in Rome. So with that being said, let's head back to Rome to catch you up on what's been happening in Rome while Caesar's been away. Now, we said Caesar is thinking about the political situation caused by Julia, his only daughter's death, even as he mourns her. Well, even Julia's funeral doesn't remain a strictly private affair. Plutarch tells us that Pompey had made arrangements for Julia's ashes to be interred in a tomb on one of his estates outside of Rome. But first, before this can happen, a public funeral is held in Rome. But after this public funeral in Rome, the common people, when they see Julia's body, go absolutely wild. They surge forward and forcibly seize Julia's body. The ancient sources, like so often, are very vague about these things, so it's impossible to know where they seized her body from, or whether it was being carried by some people, or whether it was maybe on a platform during the ceremony. Either way, the people forcibly seize her body from where it was and take Julia's body to the field of Mars, the campus Martius, with the intention of burying her there. This was a highly unusual, perhaps unprecedented honor. It was certainly not the way things were normally handled in Rome with mobs seizing bodies and deciding where they get buried in places of honor, in this case, in the field of Mars. But this is how strong the affections of the common people of Rome were for Julia. Plutarch even specifically says the common people did this more out of compassion for Julia than for the sake of either Caesar or Pompey. Though it should be said that Cassius Dio, another ancient source, speculates it could have been arranged among Caesar and Pompey's friends to make this happen, or it could have been some people in the crowd who wanted to do Caesar or Pompey a favor and so organized the crowd ahead of time. But either way, whether it was a planned and orchestrated event or whether this was a genuine outpouring of emotion from the Roman crowd, in a very traditional and conservative culture like Rome, this was bound to irritate some of the traditionalists, namely the Optimates. So Cato's brother-in-law, an arch-optimate, Ahenobarbus, remember that's his name means Redbeard, Ahenobarbus tries to prevent this burial. He said that it was sacrilegious for her to be buried there without a special decree. Presumably he's talking about a special decree from the Senate. 
But the people of Rome don't give a damn what stuffy Ahenobarbus has to say, though. And they duly bury Julia on the field of Mars anyway. And a monument would later be raised to Julia on the field of Mars and would remain visible there for centuries to come. Plutarch goes on to say that though the people of Rome did all this mainly to honor Julia, still at the same time the people seemed to pay Caesar a greater share of honor, even though he was absent from Rome, than Pompey who was actually there. All of this is a great honor to the memory of Julia, a perhaps, like I said, unprecedented honor, but Caesar is determined to honor Julia himself in his own way. Caesar plans a set of funeral games and banquets to honor Julia's death. And if we can judge by everything Caesar's done in the past, we can imagine this won't be a simple or normal funeral game or or public banquet. This is probably going to be bigger than most. Caesar will even issue orders that any well-known gladiator who fails to win the approval of the Roman crowd should be rescued from execution, to be reserved instead for Julia's funeral games. This is an effort to gather even more gladiators than would normally be available. But even this doesn't give Caesar enough gladiators for the shows he wants to put on for his daughter Julia and her death. So Caesar takes the very unusual step of asking senators and equites who are skilled in arms to train new gladiators personally at their homes. Ancient historian Suetonius even says in his day, letters from Caesar to these prominent men begging them to give personal instruction to these gladiators still survived. And like I said, none of this is the ordinary thing, right? Usually senators and equites are not asked to train gladiators in their homes. Caesar would also create excitement for the banquets by having them partly catered by his own household and partly by market contractors. And the idea behind this, why it creates excitement, I think, is that the common people of Rome then get to say that they are eating just like Julius Caesar, just like the great proconsul who's busy out conquering the world on their behalf, who is the head priest, the Pontifex Maximus of Rome. They get to eat from his personal chef. This is no ordinary chef, right? This is a proconsul chef. And me, the common ordinary Roman citizen who maybe doesn't have much money and never eats good food, gets to eat from his luxury chef. Now, for various reasons, these funeral games and these banquets won't happen for another decade at least, in part due to a civil war looming on the horizon. But it's probable that Caesar would have started planning these just after Julia's death. But none of this is where the politics of Julia's death end. In fact, they're just getting started. Julia was a sort of linchpin that kept the triumvirate together. Caesar and Crassus had a long and strong relationship with each other, but Crassus and Pompey hate each other, always have, always will. And Pompey, for his part, constantly seems unsure if he wants to befriend Caesar or befriend the Optimates. Plus, he tends to be like that anyway. It's kind of his personality. He flip-flops allegiances naturally. So while Crassus and Caesar could be readily relied upon to stay with the triumvirate, the only thing keeping Pompey in this alliance is Julia, or I should say was Julia. 
Pompey loved his wife Julia deeply. Even when friends suggested that Pompey divorce himself from Julia in order to politically separate himself from Caesar and grow closer to the Optimates, Pompey refused. And even these same friends who wanted Pompey to divorce Julia couldn't blame him for being attached to her because she herself was such a devoted wife to Pompey. But now, Julia is gone. Buried on the campus Martius. Plutarch refers to the various things that kept the triumvirate from splintering as, quote, safeguards against civil war. Now with Julia's death, the first of these safeguards against civil war has been removed, and it will not be the last. So all the way in Gaul, even as Caesar mourns his daughter's death, he knows he can't ignore these political ramifications. His great alliance, the triumvirate, has suffered a political blow, and Caesar needs to find a way to fix it. So over the next few months, Caesar looks around for young female relatives, and finding one in his great-niece Octavia, who is actually the sister of the future emperor Augustus, Caesar proposes that Pompey marry her, while Caesar simultaneously marries Pompey's daughter Pompeia. Now this is a proposal so bold that only Caesar could make it with a straight face. Because Caesar, Octavia, and Pompeia are all currently already married. That means all three of them would have to divorce their spouses to make this happen. And by the way, Pompey's daughter is married to the dictator Sulla's son. And Sulla was the same man who had put Caesar's name on a death list all those years ago. So you'd imagine, had this been accepted, this would be a great point of personal vengeance in, in Caesar's life. You know, a bit of vindication he would have felt. Although I don't know that that's what he was really aiming for. He more cared about his alliance, but still, it would have been kind of the cherry on top. But probably to everyone but Caesar's immense relief, Pompey refuses this offer. At this time, either for personal or for political reasons, Pompey is not looking to remarry. So the triumvirate isn't broken yet, but it's damaged. And it certainly isn't as strong as it had been. Now, in other lighter events in Rome, Pompey has been building a great permanent stone theater. This is the first ever permanent theater to be built in Rome. It is massive, and it's a gorgeous piece of architecture, and to inaugurate the theater, Pompey holds a set of public games and shows, including gymnastics contests and concerts and horse races, wild animal hunts and fights, in fact, 500 lions are supposed to be killed in five days in Rome, according to Cassius Dio. But in all of this, it was the killing of 18 elephants that was found to be so sad by the Roman people that they wept and called curses down upon Pompey's head. Now, you may wonder why I'm taking the time to mention to you that Pompey's building a theater hardly seems like the larger geopolitical issues at hand here in Rome. Well, the reason I'm mentioning this theater is because this theater will eventually be the site of Julius Caesar's assassination, roughly 11 years later. And speaking of Caesar, was he likely to let Pompey have all the construction glory in Rome? 
absolutely not. Caesar is now fabulously rich, and it's time to start showing it to the Roman people. If a theater can make a big splash in Rome, Caesar knows how to make an even bigger splash. Caesar decides to build Rome a new forum. Remember, the forum was the heart of Roman political life. And Caesar wants to build a new forum with his stamp all over it. So Caesar is said to have paid 100 million sesterces for the land alone. That is a staggering sum. That doesn't even include the cost of labor and construction materials. But in all of this glory-seeking from Pompey and from Caesar and these construction projects and everything else, Crassus feels put in the shade. But it isn't a building project that Crassus wants. He doesn't want games or banquets to boost his prestige. These things Crassus has done before. In fact, these building projects of Pompey and Caesar's may increase Crassus's feelings of being left out, but they aren't the main reason for him feeling left out to begin with. The main reason Crassus feels left out is because he is the only member of the Triumvirate without military glory. Way back when the Triumvirate first began, Crassus had the money, Pompey had the military glory, though he had money too, and Caesar, heavily indebted and with no army to speak of, had the raw talent and glittering charisma. It was a match made in heaven. But things have changed now. Caesar is now fabulously rich, and he has earned huge amounts of military glory in Gaul, and he's only getting more day by day. So Crassus is now feeling like the least accomplished and therefore least powerful of the triumvirate members. But being a man of action, he's determined to do something about this. Now, we already said at the conference of Lucca that Crassus had received the province of Syria and Pompey had received the two provinces in Spain. Well, Pompey, for his part, was too busy in touring the country estates of Italy with Julia to actually go to Spain. And now that she's dead, he's too busy mourning. Plus, Pompey has spent a lifetime campaigning and gaining military glory, and he doesn't feel the need to go out on campaign to prove himself to Rome anymore. But Crassus is a different story. His only military glory was as a commander under Sola in the Civil Wars and his command against Spartacus. Neither of these commands was against a foreign foe where the real glory was in Rome, and both of these commands were overshadowed by Pompey. So when Crassus receives Syria as a province, he is determined to start a war and to gain for himself glory and riches beyond compare. After all, Caesar had shown him the blueprint. Caesar had taken command of three peaceful provinces and duly started a war in Gaul. Heck, he had even gone a step further and gone to Britain and Germania. And in the process, Caesar had obtained obscene wealth and limitless glory and had made it all look easy. Why shouldn't Crassus do the same? This was the question that he asked himself, and no sooner asked than answered, yes. Yes, Crassus should do the same. So Crassus duly planned an unprovoked war against Parthia. 
And we'll get into this in a later episode, but the Parthian Empire was an empire in Caesar's day that stretched over much of ancient Persia, Mesopotamia, and more. So this was no weak or small enemy to go after. Now, in doing all this, Crassus may have felt that he was simply following in Caesar's footsteps. But Crassus is missing something subtle that Caesar understood so well. You can't just declare a war for personal gain without providing some political cover. You need to justify your war. You need to show everyone how you are the aggrieved party, how you are defending yourself rather than a greedy aggressor looking for spoils. Most of all, you have to show how your actions and your war are for the benefit of the state and the people. Caesar did all of these things. Crassus did none of them. And so the people of Rome supported Caesar in his wars, even though they were illegal, and even though they made Caesar personally wealthy. And the people of Rome did not support Crassus in his war. His ambition was too obvious. His greed was too naked. He was clearly looking for a war purely for his own sake, and he didn't even bother to create a trumped-up justification for war. And so the Roman people became angry that he was declaring war in their name on a people that had done nothing to Rome. But Crassus paid no mind to this, and became more and more excited and puffed up at the idea of his future gains in this war of his, to the point where he couldn't even hide it. Plutarch tells us, and in this quote he's talking about this period in Crassus' life, Plutarch says, quote, But Crassus was so transported with his fortune that it was manifest he thought he had never had such good luck befall him as now, so that he had much to do to contain himself before company and strangers. But amongst his private friends he let fall many vain and childish words, which were unworthy of his age and contrary to his usual character, for he had been very little given to boasting hitherto. But then, being strangely puffed up, his head heated, he would not limit his fortune with Parthia and Syria, but looking on the actions of Lucullus against Tigranes and the exploits of Pompey against Mithridates as but child's play, he proposed to himself in his hopes to pass as far as Bactria and India and to the utmost ocean. Not that he was called upon by the decree which appointed him to his office to undertake any expedition against the Parthians, but it was well known that he was eager for it, and Caesar wrote to him out of Gaul, commending his resolution and inciting him to the war. End quote. Crassus is as giddy as a schoolboy. He has grand plans of being a modern day, in his time, Alexander the Great, and marching all the way to India in the encircling ocean. Meanwhile, Caesar is writing him letters from Gaul, hyping him up the whole time. True to form, Caesar is never one to hate on others' ambitions. Instead, he believes that they can all win together. But Rome is not boarding the hype train. At one point, a tribune tries to arrest Crassus before he leaves Rome for Syria. Now, Crassus is a powerful and well-connected man, so this fails, but it's worrying. And on his way out of the city of Rome to go to Syria, Crassus becomes so concerned about the public outcry against him that he is forced to ask his old nemesis, Pompey, to walk him out of the city, 
He's like a kid having to ask for his hand to be held so he can cross the street. And it's only through Pompey's interference that the crowds of Rome are mollified and allow Crassus to pass unharmed. But Crassus is not out of the woods yet. As he approaches one of the gates of Rome, a tribune stands there, ominously waiting for him. Now, this tribune doesn't try to physically stop Crassus this time. He doesn't even speak to Crassus, but he does speak words directed at Crassus. You see, this tribune had a brazier. It's like a metal pan held up by a stand with coals or some kind of fire in it in front of him, and he has a fire lit in this brazier. And this tribune is busy burning incense in this fire and pouring libations over it. And as the tribune speaks over the fire, he curses Crassus, calling upon strange and horrible deities to carry out the curse. This was a chilling send-off for Crassus, to say the least. A worse omen to start Crassus' journey and future invasion couldn't have been imagined. But of course, a curse was no simple thing in ancient Rome. Otherwise, everyone would be throwing them about all the time. The Romans took curses seriously and believed that the conjurer of a curse was seldom to escape its bad effects. So that only a desperate person with nothing to lose would actually curse somebody else. So here is this tribune, duly elected by the Roman people to represent the plebeians, the, the, the most common of the Roman people, and he's putting a curse on Crassus on behalf of the whole city. This means the city will have to pay the ill effects of this curse. This sort of blowback that is inherent in such things. And so many Romans at this time blamed the Tribune for resorting to such dark and desperate measures and feared that Rome was in for some supernatural terrors in its future. And that is where we'll leave Crassus for this episode. Now, Crassus is not the only one dealing with drama in Rome around this time. There is another story I have saved for last, and it is by far the most scandalous and the most juicy of our stories. This story will lead Caesar to essentially make the outrageous claim that Cato, paragon of Roman virtue, had engaged in wife trafficking. You heard that right. So... Obviously, as we've learned, Caesar is not exactly a neutral party when it comes to judging Cato's character. So I'm going to tell you the whole story and then you can decide for yourself whether you agree with Caesar or not. Our story starts with a man named Hortensius. Hortensius had lived quite an accomplished life. He had been a statesman, a top-notch lawyer. At one point, he had been considered the king of the law courts. He had been a famous orator, and he had even risen as high as consul back in 69 BCE and had made himself very wealthy during his career. Now, by roughly 55 or 56 BCE, when our story takes place, all of those accomplishments are in the past. Hortensius, by this time, is in his late 50s and therefore, by the standards of antiquity, an older man. He's still highly respected, he's still very wealthy, 
but by this time Hortensius has left behind public life and prefers to indulge his passion for raising pet fish in ponds. But of all the things I could say about Hortensius, perhaps the most important to Cato was that he was a staunch optimate, and therefore Cato loved Hortensius. In fact, it was mutual, and the two seemed to have been good friends. Well, one day, at a ripe old age, remember we're talking about Hortensius' late 50s here, this is antiquity, people don't live as long, the wealthy Hortensius pays a visit to Cato. And at this visit, Hortensius says, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he says that he loves and admires Cato as a friend and as a man, but that he wants more than just friendship from Cato. Hortensius wants to become family with Cato. He wants to unite their houses, so he proposes a marriage. Hortensius proposes to Cato that Hortensius should marry Cato's daughter, Portia. Now, this was an odd request. For one, Portia was roughly around 20 years old. Again, Hortensius is in his late 50s. This was in a large age gap even in ancient Roman times. Not unheard of, but still, it would raise some eyebrows. But what made this proposal even more strange was that Portia was already married. She was married to Cato's perhaps best friend, Bibulus. Remember old Bibulus, Caesar's colleague in the consulship, the guy that Caesar had dumped a bucket of poop over? In fact, by this time, Portia had already had two kids with Bibulus, who was supposed to have been very fond of Portia. Now, you would think any normal person would say, Oh, that's a good point. I forgot she was already married. Uh, forget I ever brought it up, Cato. It was a mistake on my part. But not only does this new knowledge, or it's probably not new knowledge to him, but not only does this knowledge not put Hortensius off from the idea of marrying Portia, it positively encourages him. Hortensius then compares Portia to a fair plot of land. He says that Portia had already borne fruit for Bibulus, and it would now make sense for her to be given to Hortensius as a fair plot of land to bear fruit for him. And Hortensius goes on to say, and this is a direct quote given to us by Plutarch, Plutarch says, For, said he, meaning Hortensius, though this in the opinion of men may seem strange, yet in nature it is honest and profitable for the public that a woman in the prime of her youth should not lie useless and lose the fruit of her womb, nor, on the other side, should burden and impoverish one man by bringing him too many children. Also by this communication of families among worthy men, virtue would increase and be diffused through their posterity, and the commonwealth would be united and cemented by their alliances. End quote. Hortensius is basically making the case that they need to put young Portia's reproductive organs to good use for the benefit of the commonwealth. He also points out that Portia had already given two kids to Bibulus, and that therefore Bibulus has enough kids, any more kids, and it would be unfair to Bibulus, since it would put an unfair financial strain on him. 
This may sound ridiculous to us, but this may have been something that the ancient Roman aristocracy especially believed in, since you'd have to pay for political careers for all the male heirs and marry off all the women, and all this stuff was expensive. And Hortensius goes on in that quote and says that, therefore, it makes good sense in the eyes of Hortensius, at least, to give Portia over to him and to share the wealth so that he could have kids with Portia too. And then he goes on to make some points about how uniting their houses will benefit the commonwealth down the line in the future. And it's very tempting to roll your eyes at lines like that and be like, yeah, sure, bud, that's why you want to marry the woman who's half your age or maybe a third of your age. But I do think that some of these guys really did think this way. They are ancient people. And so, you know, marriages were always political alliances, first and foremost. So we shouldn't completely discount this. Though, nor should we discount the normal human motives of, of a man in his late 50s wanting to marry a woman who's around 20 years old. But don't go thinking Hortensius is an unreasonable or selfish man. Hortensius was also aware that Bibulus was very fond of his young wife, Portia. So, generous Hortensius offers a compromise. If Bibulus won't give Portia away altogether, Hortensius proposes that Bibulus essentially loan Portia to him. And once Portia has given Hortensius a child, Hortensius will then give Portia back to Bibulus. Like I said, a very generous man. Now, at this point, I imagine just the most confused and blown away look on Cato's face at this proposal. But then again, this is Cato we're talking about, so you never know. Maybe all of this made good sense to him. Cato replies to all of this and says that he loves Hortensius very much, but feels that it's strange to speak of Hortensius marrying his daughter, Portia, when Portia's already married. Now at this, Hortensius does not miss a beat and instantly switches tacks. Instead of continuing to ask for Portia's hand in marriage, Hortensius now asks Cato if Cato would give up his own wife, Marcia, who Cato is also very fond of. Again, Hortensius makes the same point that Cato already has enough kids with Marcia, and therefore he should give up Marcia to Hortensius to be put to use again making more babies. This was another wild request. Because not only was Marcia married to Cato, not only did Cato love Marcia, but Marcia is at that very moment that Hortensius is asking, pregnant with Cato's child, according to Plutarch. This is an utterly shocking request to ask of somebody. But even more shockingly, Cato says yes, on the condition that Marcia's father also say yes. So Hortensius, losing no time, summons Marcia's father to come meet them. His name is Philippus. Philippus shows up, sees that Cato and Hortensius both seem to be in agreement about this. So he says, sure, why not? And he gives his consent to this marriage and divorce. <laughs> so Cato divorces Marcia and then actually assists in marrying her to Hortensius. Now, at some point after this marriage, Marcia does give birth to a child by Hortensius, so that goes as planned, at least Cato and Hortensius' plans. I don't think Marcia had any plans in any of this. 
Then, a few years later, in 50 BCE, five to six years after the marriage, Hortensius dies and leaves the entirety of his very wealthy estate to Marcia, who is now Cato's ex-wife. And the death of her husband now means that Marcia is back under the control of her father. It also means that she's extremely wealthy. Now, the next year, in 49 BCE, the Civil War breaks out. Caesar marches on Rome. The Optimates are fleeing left and right. And Cato needs to flee Rome to join the Optimates in exile. But his daughters, he has young daughters that live at his household, can't come with him. So Cato then takes Marcia back into his house to keep his house and care for his daughters while he is away, as Plutarch puts it. Plutarch doesn't specifically say marriage there, but it seems like Cato remarried her. And looking at this from Marcia's perspective, none of the ancient sources say that these are Marcia's daughters, but they must have been, because Cato never gets remarried after his divorce and then takes her back into his house and remarries her, so he wouldn't have any additional kids that weren't originally Marcia's. So these are probably Marcia's daughters, too. And this is probably at least part of the reason why Marcia would agree to come back and to remarry Cato again, if she had any choice in it at all. It could have just been worked out between Cato and her father. Cato, after remarrying Marcia, then sets sail to join the Optimates and leaves Marcia in charge of the house and in charge of his daughters. So now in our story, we have Cato back with Marcia, his original wife, and they are rich because Marcia has inherited Hortensius' wealth. Now, this whole story would lead Caesar to accuse Cato of essentially wife trafficking. According to Plutarch, Caesar says, and Plutarch quotes Caesar here, he says, quote, For, said he, if he, meaning Cato, had need of a wife, why did he part with her? And if he had not, why did he take her again? Unless he gave her only as bait to Hortensius and lent her when she was young to have her again when she was rich. End quote. Caesar here is essentially saying if Cato needed a wife, then why did he divorce Marcia to begin with? And if he didn't need a wife, then why did he take Marcia back and remarry her? Unless the whole goal all along was to use Marcia as bait, bait to lure in Hortensius. And like Caesar said, Marcia was lent away when she was young to have again and remarry once she was rich. Now, it's worth remembering that a young Julius Caesar was once ordered to divorce his wife by the dictator Sola. And at that time, it would have been understood by a young Caesar that his name would have been put on a death list if he refused Sola. Nevertheless, showing immense loyalty to his wife and to her family and bravery in the face of a bully, Caesar had boldly refused to divorce his wife. And as a result of this decision to stand up to Sola like this, Caesar was duly put on a death list and was forced to go from house to house avoiding death squads searching for him. So it's easy for us to see how this story of Cato just kind of haphazardly divorcing his wife because his rich friend asked him to would irritate Caesar in some way. Especially when so much of Rome sees Cato as some kind of paragon of virtue in Rome. 
It should also be said that one of the ancient historians who talks about this, Appian, paints this story as an example of what a virtuous and good friend Cato was to make a personal sacrifice by giving up his loved wife to his friend. Appian even says that Cato gave Hortensius his wife and then took her back again once Hortensius had a child by her, quote, as though he had made a loan, end quote. Of course, modern minds interpret this story rather differently than an ancient author like Appian. Putting aside if money was the motive, Marcia seems to have been treated like a breeding slave in all of this, shipped from one household to another to make babies for these men. Now, of course, to play devil's advocate, it's always possible that Marcia was a willing participant in all of this to get that money and bring it back to the household to help out her kids. Crazier things have happened, but I doubt it. Women didn't have much power in ancient Rome, and from the way that Hortensius talks about women, I would guess that they had even less power in the traditional optimate homes. All that being said, when I think about the story, it seems to me Cato treated his wife horribly, not to gain money, but to live up to some kind of stoic or optimate ideal of a good friend and fellow optimate. So, in answering the question, did Cato traffic his wife for money, as Caesar implies? Honestly, I don't think so. But did he traffic her for other reasons, such as helping his optimate buddy have children? Yes, I absolutely think so. And even if Cato didn't really sell his wife for money, which he may have, we don't know, even if he didn't sell her for money, he still doesn't escape this story looking particularly good or righteous. But, like I said, those are just my thoughts, and everyone is entitled to their own. I'm sure you will have your own take on this story. But that is where we will end our episode today of The March of History. In our next episode, episode 52, we are heading back to Caesar in Gaul. Caesar may have been busy mourning the death of his daughter and his mother while trying to deal with the political realities of Julia's death, but events in Gaul won't leave him much time to dwell on negative things. The harvest in Gaul has failed due to a drought, and no harvest in Gaul means a lot of angry, rebellious Gauls especially when the Romans are busy eating their food in winter camps. But before you go, let me just take a moment to thank all of our Patreon supporters. As I always say, and I never get tired of saying it, this podcast would not be possible without your support and contributions. So thank you so much. You guys are the rock that keeps this podcast going. Don't forget to follow the March of History's Instagram. That's at the March of History. Tons of really cool content about European history from Rome, from Naples, from Mount Vesuvius, from the Colosseum, from the island of Capri, much, much more. Lots of videos of me talking about history at the location and telling you a bit more about it. Also, I have a YouTube channel now called Trevor Travels. Go ahead and search it. You'll see a picture of me. There are a few channels called Trevor Travels, but your best bet is to go into the description of any podcast episode where the summary is, and there you will find a link to the YouTube channel. You will also find links in the summary to our Patreon and to our PayPal account. Once I have a bit of a backlog here in terms of podcast episodes, I'm going to put more energy into producing YouTube videos for you guys. And like I've told you in previous episodes, I have videos from 
all over Spain, all over Europe, Ireland, Germany, Italy. They go in depth to even see cool things like the Tullianum, which is the prison the Romans kept prisoners in. We've talked about that with Cicero and his murder of the Catalinarian conspiracies. We find the Tarpian Rock in Rome. So a lot more is coming on the YouTube channel. And finally, don't forget to leave a rating on the Apple Podcast Store and say a little few words about what you like about the podcast, and I will read it on our next podcast episode and give your name a shout-out. And even Spotify now allows you to leave not a written rating of the podcast, but you can leave it in terms of stars. So go ahead and leave a five-star rating on the Spotify. That will help the March of History to grow and be found by new audience members. Thank you so much for all of your support, and I will talk to you next time in episode 52 of the March of History. (laughs) 